LightSource is available free of charge through studiolighting.net. You can support LightSource by visiting supportlightsource.com. There you can donate through the tip jar, purchase a lighting DVD, get a discount on website hosting through squarespace.com, or you can visit our affiliate links for Adorama or amazon.com where you can shop for camera gear or photography books, and a portion of those proceeds will help support LightSource. This is Brad Feikenoff. I'm an architectural photographer, and you're listening to LightSource. And welcome to episode 82 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, the website that introduces photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. On today's episode, we have an interview with Brad Feinkenoff, and you can follow along on his website at www.feinkenoff.com. It's a, it's a little bit of a difficult spelling, and I have botched it up many times, but you can check it out, and we're going to talk to him shortly. Uh, he is an architectural photographer. He photographs these amazing buildings that I rarely ever get a chance to see, much less photograph them like he does. He is based out of Columbus, Ohio, but he has a, an amazing legacy of uh, the photographers that he's worked with, and the, the buildings and clients and stuff that he does now are just fantastic. So we've had a lot of commercial photographers, a lot of model you know, people photographers, editorial photographers. So it's it's really cool to get a chance to talk to somebody who, yeah, you know, it's it's like still life on a large scale, basically. And one thing that stood out to me about Brad is, you know, a lot of the advice that he gives is, is applicable no matter what kind of photography you do. So a little bit of a different perspective, but definitely useful information for everybody. Yeah, definitely. I, I wish I had a, a lot of chance to shoot in some of the environments that he does. And he definitely it gets a chance to work with very talented designers and you know people that really design the spaces that they're photographing. And even it goes to the point of, you know, that the lighting in these places are, you know, so beautiful. But it is a matter of there is a science to actually getting a good picture from some of these incredibly well-designed, well-lit, well-architected spaces. Absolutely. And also this interview was interesting because it was one of the first times that we really used Twitter to get questions. I thought that was kind of cool. So as we were doing the interview real time, you guys were giving us questions and we asked Brad while we were doing the call. Yeah, and we've actually talked to a couple people where we've used Twitter, but this is actually the first time that we've got to announce it and release it to you guys and you actually hear, you know, the the fruits of you guys sending questions in. So it was it's it's turning out like it's a pretty cool communication media. So we'll have to start twittering our interview schedule ahead of time so that way we can get people in a semi-live atmosphere and you know maybe make this more of a real-time three-way communication. Absolutely. It's a good tool for that. So keep them coming. Well, one thing that I've got a chance to play with the Color Spider Print Fix Pro. Mm, how'd that go? So, well, the first night it went kind of scary. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, I've, for years, I've used the Color Spider for calibrating my monitor. Well, that all started with the one Epson printer that I had had a horrible problem with mentamerism, meaning that it color shifts in different light. It was one of the very early pigment ink printers that Epson put out, and it suffered from that problem horribly. So the moment I switched to using a color spider for the monitor, it actually helped me get my prints a bit closer to the way that they should look. Now, I should say that I don't really do a whole lot of printing 
you know, it's not like I'm a portrait studio that's outputting a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I'm, most of my stuff goes to iStock or to, you know, direct to a client or to a print service. I don't really do much of my stuff here. So I've never really concerned myself too much with printer calibration. So when I switched to using Lightroom, I ran into a big, huge hiccup with printing. I've always had good luck with coming out of Photoshop. I had the whole workflow down where you do print preview, convert your profile before you go to print to whatever print driver plus paper that you were going to use, and then turn off color calibration in your printer so that way the printer driver wouldn't try to tweak what's coming out of Photoshop because Photoshop has been color corrected at that point. Right. So when I switched to using Lightroom to do direct printing, my stuff that came out of my printer did not look like what was on my screen. I've always been used to a little bit of differences, but this is was always like, ooh, yellow. Right. I kind of gave up on doing my own printing for a while, which is a shame because I have some really good printers. So my coworker got the PrintFix Pro, and I said, let me play with that before I, I commit to it. Took it home, plugged it in, and... It's interesting. It's it's a fun little process to do. You probably need about a half hour to do one printer with one paper set to build a profile. Real quickly, to give you an overview of what it does, is it prints out an 8.5 by 11 sheet, has about 255 color swatches on it, and the software says, okay, these are what these colors are, and then you have your densitometer that you hover over each square, and you start at the top, and you put your densitometer perfectly over the square, and you hit the button, and uh, your speaker makes a little ding sound, and you move on to the next one. So you do that until you get all the squares marked on your computer that you can see your progress on the screen, and you can say, oh, okay, I have them all now. So then you name your profile, and you say, profile it. So I did that, and the first night I was like, oh, great, this is awesome. I got it fixed, and I printed it out, and everything was purple. Oh, that's bizarre. Very purple. You know, threw my hands up. I was like, this is stupid. I'm done. <laughs> Next night I said, okay, I'll be more patient. I'll make sure I have everything perfectly centered, you know, and I'll take my time with it and make sure that I get the dot perfectly over each piece and recalibrated it the next night, made another profile, and my prints are coming out really beautiful now. Wow. So I'm going to chalk it up to first-time user error the first night. <laughs> right. Well, cool. That's great to know. Yeah, so I'm really pleased with it right now. I want to try and calibrate. I also have an Epson R260, which is kind of like their $70 inkjet printer that I picked up to be able to print on CDs and black and white prints and stuff like that. You know, if I need a web page printed out. So I'm, I'm a little curious to give that one a shot too and see what that one calibrates too. I had a couple Twitter followers that were saying, oh, did I miss on the show that you were talking about this? Well, I just hadn't talked about it yet. The Twitter post came out before the show came out. So gotcha. if you were following me then, now we're in the future. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I was doing another thing. Speaking of Twitter, the other day I actually mentioned on Twitter that I was looking for a way to capture images that I found on the internet that are inspiring. So okay. pretty cool. I, I tweeted about it and I got a lot of really good feedback. I got some great suggestions. Um, what I found was that most of the people that, that responded keep their images that they find on the internet just like in a folder on their hard drive called inspiration or whatever, you know? Okay. However, a lot of them link that folder to the internet or to their iPhone or whatever device so they can, you know, sync it up and so they have everything with them wherever they wherever they're shooting. But I also found a couple of other options. One was uh, Evernote, which of course I played around with a little bit. I have a BlackBerry, so it's not as good as the iPhone implementation. But you can take pictures and it syncs across the web, 
syncs with your computer's hard drive and folders if you wanted to. So wherever you go, you can have these inspirational images, which is cool. You can also tag them and annotate them and so forth. Now, I think that's really interesting, being able to to tag stuff. Because I was going to suggest that something that I do, I kind of do the folder method. And this is kind of something that we've talked about. We had the moleskins for, you know, for writing down ideas and things like that when we're out and about. Right. I like to take those and, you know, take a photograph of them and then import those into Lightroom and actually keyboard them. I think that's a really good idea because a lot of times we'll be at a studio session and you know there's sketches that are related to what it is that you're shooting, but they're kind of hard to find. Flipping through a bunch of sketchbooks and stuff on, on site isn't always the easiest. So that's a great idea. Well, the other recommendation I got too was a, a service which I hadn't heard about called ImageSpark. It's I-M-G-S-P-A-R-K dot com. And they have a kind of interesting premise to their service. It's a website that when you're surfing along, you can actually add an image that you find to your ImageSpark collection website, and it will mark that image and you can tag it. You can also opt to share it with the community. So there's a place where you can look at everyone else's inspiring images and, you know, there's illustrations and typography and all sorts of things that are all in the community section. So that's kind of a, a neat service also. So it's almost like a delicious for images. It's a, it's like a delicious for images. To, uh, it's one of the unique features that they have is they call them mood boards. You can grab a bunch of images from your collection and from the community and arrange them in kind of a collage. So if you're going to a shoot and you have a certain feel, kind of like a virtual bulletin board of your ideas for your shot or whatever. Oh, so, that's an, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's neat. I wish it was a little more mobile. I haven't really didn't find it to be extra, you know, unique in that sense. But certainly if you have access to the internet while you're in a, a studio or something, that would come in really handy. And I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm finding myself just browsing through it almost daily now, just because I like to see what's popular and what people are finding inspiring. Sometimes that gives me ideas as well. So I know I had looked at Evernote one time in the past, and I thought that there was like a, a cost associated with it that caused me to, to, think twice about doing it. I'm looking at it now and it looks like the free version gives you up to 40 megabytes a month and the premium version, which is $5 a month, gives you a 500 megabyte monthly allowance. But I mean, if you're talking about images or small PDFs or things like that, I mean, you're going to get a lot in 40 megabytes. Yeah, I would imagine so. The other nice thing about it is if you have the iPhone app, you can just you know take pictures as you're walking down the street if you see something that inspires you and it will add it to your collection and all that. So that's kind of interesting too. Yeah, you know, I, I'm interested in this again. I, th- I think I'm going to give this a shot. Yeah, well, and if you're walking down the street and you see a background or a place where you you know might want to shoot, that would be another cool application for it. Yeah. So location scouting and so forth. Speaking of Twittering and taking photos with your iPhone and all kinds of stuff like that, Chase Jarvis. <laughs> <laughs> he cracks me up. And dude's a riot. Uh, he has a short little 44-second video on his website that you should go check out. It's it's under the post titled Consequences of Creativity. His uh, ADCD teaser. He's been invited to the Art Directors Club of Denver award show. And it's a funny video. <laughs> It's pretty funny. Just a um, fun little video from Chase to, to cheer you up. One last thing before we get into the interview. iStock Photo did a book through uh, Blurb.com. I believe you have experience with Blurb, Bill. Yes. And I've been checking them out a bit lately because you know they, 
look like they do some really cool stuff, especially in photography books. So iStock designed one with some iStock images and um, some featuring some other artists and put together uh, a book that you can order from the iStock store. Uh, you can go into the book section and that sends you over to the Blurb website. It does benefit a charity. I believe it's the charity Water. So if you want to read more about the charity, you can do that. And if you want to check out the book, the book is available there. And it's very cool. I'm thinking about picking one up just so that I can, uh, well, one, you know, help out the charity and kind of sample the quality of the books before I commit to building one of my uh, my new gig. Uh, did I tell you I'm shooting for the Yankees this year? You're shooting for the Yankees. Yeah, I'm shooting for the Yankees. I'll have to send you a link to some of the photos. It's under an NDA right now. It's the Redland Yankees, but anyway. Redland little Yankees. League, <laughs> little, little League Yankees, but, you know, hey. That's still great. the Yankees. Good for so, you, man. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, moving up. <laughs> Got me out of the dugout finally. So, yeah, I'm thinking about put, doing an end-of-year thing, so I'm curious to see how these things look. So if anyone has any experience with Blurb, definitely send me a tweet. Let me know what you think, you know, good experiences or bad experiences. I'm curious to hear what, uh, what you guys have to say. Until then, we have our interview here coming up with Brad Feinkenoth and his architectural photography. this edition of The Late Source, we have with us this evening a fine architectural photographer, Brad Feinkenoff. Brad, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about how you got started in photography and how you came to specialize with architectural work. Well, it actually was not unlike, I think, many people, a somewhat circuitous route. But I grew up, my father and grandfather were both architects. And ever since I was a small child, I thought I wanted to be an architect all through kind of high school. And I really did not have any interest in photography. Photography was largely that which were more photojournalists did for the newspaper or the yearbook, but it was not really an artistic endeavor, more of a journalistic endeavor. And basically, it was the kids who happened to have a fair amount of money to own nice cameras were the photographers in high school. <laughs> and then I, I went to college, and actually, my undergraduate degrees in facility planning and management, which was intended to be a lead into architecture in graduate school. But as it turns out, my junior year in college, I had uh, quite a few friends who were photography majors and got me to take a photography course. And I had an excellent first professor by the name of Barry Perlis at Cornell University. He was out of the minor white school of thought, and it was a lot about how you see the world around you. And, and I very quickly, actually, my second photography course of my life was taking a view camera course. And there was just something about working with the 4 by 5 and seeing that image upside down and backwards on the ground glass that was very intriguing to me and I, I very quickly knew that I, I really enjoyed photography I, I enjoyed having the opportunity to slow down and look at and appreciate the world around me and using photography as a vehicle to do just that and basically in my last year and a half of college I took as many photography courses as I could get my hands on in fact my sort of guidance counselor or whatever got pretty fed up with me because he, he kept on wanting me to take kind of facility planning courses and I really wasn't doing that. So after college, I knew I was not certainly ready to open my own studio. I'd only been taking courses for a year and a half, so I didn't feel I was in a position to go to graduate school or didn't feel I was ready to go 
of the graduate school. So I thought that the next stage in my career was to assist and try and work for the best people I could get my hands on. And at that point in time in 1986, the best people in my mind were working in New York City. So I moved to New York City and had sent letters to people of introduction telling them when I was going to move to New York City and uh, moved to New York City. And very fortunately, my first job out of college was working uh, for Richard Avedon in the Avedon studio. Wow. which I think set a, a certain degree of precedent from kind of there on out. Working in that environment was not necessarily a very easy environment to work in, hmm. but there was a high degree of uh, emphasis placed upon perfectionism. And I, I think, you know, that striving to create something of excellence continues on. But I was in New York City for about a little bit more than two years and and worked for Richard Avedon, worked for Horst, uh, worked for Arnold Newman, um, worked for Joyce Tennyson, really had a, a whole group of pretty amazing photographic experiences, and then returned to Columbus, Ohio, which is where I'm from, uh, wanted to be closer to family, worked as an assistant in Columbus for a while, and then basically went out on my own. And sort of what happened, I, I don't know that I really intended to be an architectural photographer. I intended to be a photographer. I enjoyed shooting buildings. I enjoyed shooting people. And I just think over time, what seemed to happen is I had a certain degree of acumen about architecture and new architecture and kind of the more I shot buildings, the better I became at shooting buildings. And I suppose that sort of over time kind of taken over and what once was maybe 60, 40 corporate and people to architecture now is about 90% architecture and 10% corporate and people work. So, I mean, I still enjoy doing those things. I just don't get the opportunity right. to do them quite as often. <laughs> So. Does your family background come into play a lot? When Does that you know play a part in how you photograph? I think it does. I think there's a lot of photographers out there who either think they're an architectural photographer or think they can shoot architecture, and they believe that shooting architecture is simple and basic and putting on a wide-angle lens and standing in the corner and taking a picture. And I don't really call that architectural photography. I call that documentational photography. I think that from you know very young age, I was going to job sites with my father and looking at projects and looking at buildings. And, and I would also say that though my father was an architect, I think my father had a pretty good eye himself. And he was always shooting projects and showing slideshows and things mm. like that. So I do think that there's been tremendous growth in my visualization or my eye in the last 15 years. But I do think that certain seeds were planted at a very early age, just starting to learn the very basics of the language of architecture. Right. And I do think that that is important on a lot of different levels, A, from understanding of what you're trying to accomplish, but B, also purely in, in being able to communicate with an architect about design intent. And then, you know, essentially, good architectural photography is a storytelling device of being able to express visually what the design intent of the architect was. That seems like a really good way to express it. And I was wondering, as you talk, 
when you interact with the architects, are you trying to make sure that you understand their vision so that you can translate that into a 2D image? To a certain degree. I mean, it's kind of a mixed process of trying to understand their vision so that you can express it, but not wholeheartedly that. One needs to also accept the fact that you are a creative entity in the equation. So it's also, you know, what am I seeing? How am I seeing? What do I want to express here? Because people are hiring you for your critical eye. Um, But it also needs to, I mean, the simple fact of the matter is the photography needs to serve a purpose as well. And that purpose needs to be telling the story of that building. That's great. So there's kind of an interaction between, in a sense, the two artists, the architecture, with the original vision, and then your art enters in as well. Absolutely. I do believe that some of the best photography comes from a collaboration. I can go to a building and take lots of beautiful shots, but whether they're going to serve the architects and purpose, some of them may and some of them may not. So I I do think that it, it really needs to be a collaboration, but I also think that there needs to be a certain amount of trust in the architectural photographer on behalf of the architect of what their vision is. I think I've said many times a statement, I say I I photograph construction companies' dreams and architects' nightmares. And, (laughs) And what I mean by that is a construction company, when a building is finished and they've gotten paid, all is good. (laughs) For the architect, typically the end product, the building, is a compromise of what their initial vision for that project was. And between the start of the project and the end of the project, certain things got value engineered out. And depending upon how many sacrifices they made (laughs) along the path, (laughs) determines a lot of how they perceive the building. So you have to be able to, what you see, and which is often different than what the architect sees. You see what actually exists, where the architect often sees all the things that don't exist that he wishes (laughs) exist. (laughs) Missing pieces in it. Exactly. So you have to accept that you're dealing with reality and that reality is what exists and that is what you're taking pictures of. You can't take pictures of what doesn't exist. Right. I wanted to take a couple of minutes One of the things that I did for the first time before the show is I mentioned that we're about to do our interview on Twitter. So I have a couple questions that we got from actual followers of us on Twitter, and a couple Mm -hmm. of them are pretty interesting and somewhat related to what we're talking about right now. One of them was from a gentleman who was interested in when you arrive at a building, how you determine your angles. How do you figure out where you're going to shoot from and what's important in terms of composition and so forth? It's a process that, I mean, I I will walk the site. I mean, there's no question I will walk the site and I will see that which I initially see. And I will be very frank and say, I really prefer to not try and shoot a project in a day. I mean, a lot of times that's what the budget holds and that's what I'm doing. But for a bigger, more significant project, I really want to be at the project two or three or four days photographing it. Because I think what people don't understand, and even a lot of architectural photographers don't understand, is they think of a building as a static object. And buildings are not static objects. Buildings evolve and change throughout the day. They change throughout the seasons. They change through different atmospheric conditions. It is a 
constantly evolving thing. And that a certain space that may look a certain way at 9 a.m. may look very different at 2 o'clock and may look very different at 9 p.m. So a lot of times it is moving through the building, moving through the space, and trying to get an understanding of when does this particular space evolve to a point where it looks its best, then trying to make sure that you're there at that point in time. With that said, when you go to a building, let's say you get to the building at 9 a.m. and you walk through it at that point in time and kind of get an idea of where your shots are and things like that. You know, that afternoon you may walk through that same building again and things will unveil themselves to you that maybe you didn't see at 9 a.m. and because of sun position or, or whatever. So, and I will tell you, I've been at projects for three days and on the third day, I see something that I somehow never saw the first two days because I wasn't at a place at a certain time. Well, Um, that brings up a a good question. You were saying you're at these sites for multiple days and you have a lot of times they're a huge location. Do you take sample shots while you're doing these walkthroughs? Do you take notes so that way you can go back at the end of the day and kind of assemble shot lists for when you're actually doing your shooting day? I mean, how do you keep all of these straight? I don't take sample shots and I, well, sometimes we'll mark up a set of plans. I mean, there's been shoots where there's been a significant amount of shots that I walked through the project maybe the day before we were going to start three days of shooting and then sat down uh, with an assistant and sort of said, okay, I think we want to shoot this space at this time on this day and then this space at this time and and sort of put together a rough timeline of of where I want to be when throughout the process of the shooting schedule just so we can be efficient and and do things. But I will also say that there's an awful lot that I do keep in my head. And I will also say that I think from looking at a lot of buildings for a lot of years, part of the strength that I bring to photographing architecture is the ability to assess a building relatively quickly and sort of say, okay, there's a shot here, there's a shot here, okay, this is what we need to get, and and just have my own kind of mental dialogue with the building of, of what needs to be accomplished. He talks to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. That's you know? cool. To me, it sounds like you also need a really good understanding of time of day, angle of sun. Is there prep work you do on a site, you know, to figure out what time does the sun rise, what, what angle, you know, all those sorts of things? Yeah, I'm, I'm well, I, I live by the Weather Channel, and I've got several apps for my iPhone of uh, sunrise, sunset, dawn, dusk, all those things. And obviously, building orientation and all those things are pretty darn critical. I mean, an, an interesting thing, I shot the Nasher Museum at Duke University and this was several years ago, and we shot it in May, and it was the building was complete, but there was no artwork installed in the building. And Duke wanted to put together a book about the architecture of the building. So it was, I don't want to say it was a shell, but it was a, a museum without artwork. Hmm. 
and we photographed the whole museum, and then that those photographs ended up comprising the imagery which made up this book about the museum. And then we returned in October to re-photograph the museum, obviously not entirely re-photographing the museum, but to photograph some of the galleries and things like that once the artwork had been installed uh, after the grand opening had taken place and, and they wanted the book produced for the grand opening. The interesting thing, going back to what I was saying before, is that there were certain shots that we took in May that when we went back to look at them again in October, those shots we essentially could not take those shots. I'm not saying we couldn't take them. Theoretically, we could have. But what was a good shot in May was not necessarily a good shot in October due to sun position and everything else. You know, in May, the sun's a lot higher in the sky. It's a lot more north, whereas in October, it's far more southern and not as high in the sky. And so the shadow patterns and everything on the wall were just totally different. (laughs) So... And that was really a kind of a a surprising revelation, even for myself, to return to a project again. It's sometimes fun and interesting to return to a project that you've shot and whether it's shoot it again or look at it again and, and really understand that how it's different from it was when you shot it the first time around. Wow. It changes. <laughs> That's excellent. That's something I hadn't really thought of either. Remarkable. I guess I'm so used to working in like a studio under a controlled situation so much that I would not even really think about as much that seasons might keep you from getting a shot that you got the previous time. It's all having a, this sounds pretty hokey, but having a kinship with Mother Nature. And, sure. <laughs> but but I, I also will say, you know, Mother Nature is a very interesting thing. And I think there's also the, I think one thing that I've learned over the years also is, and I'm not saying I, I'm out there photographing in the rain, but sometimes magical things come out of very, very bad weather situations. Hmm. If I waited around for a blue sky day every time I was going to photograph a building, A, I think a lot of my photography would be a lot more boring, and and B, my productiveness would be based upon how many sunny days there were in a year. And I have found over the years, and a lot of times it's, it's been simply that I'm on location, I'm out of state, I'm there, and you're trying to make something, I don't want to say make something out of nothing, but make something happen, you have to deal with the weather conditions that you've been given. And there's been so many times that I've had a storm clearing at dusk, or I mean, there, there's been times where I shot a building in Kansas City in a lightning storm, and we've got lightning strikes hitting behind the building. I was standing under an umbrella, not probably the smartest <laughs> thing I've ever done. Um, but, you know, it's it sometimes when you're forced into trying to see what you can walk away with, you end up walking away with something far more magical than you ever would have gotten on a sunny blue sky day. (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, this is going back a ways, but about 10 years ago, I used to do all of the photography Bobby Ray Hall and Team Ray Hall, and it was Bobby Ray Hall's final year of racing, and they had a special silver car for him, and we went out to Mid-Ohio Racetrack to photograph him with the race car with the race 
racetrack kind of winding behind him. And we got the whole shot set up. We had generators and strobes out on the track, uh, obviously very different from architectural photography. And all of a sudden, the storm rolled in. So we covered up the car and we put all the strobes in the back of a van and uh, and got the electricity all turned off <laughs> and sat there for about a half an hour while it just dumped. And then all of a sudden, the storm stopped. We brought our lights back out. We set them back up. And we got all set up for the shot, got Bobby into the shot and everything. And we took our shot. And our shot had this incredible storm in the sky going away. The rain had wetted down about a mile and a quarter of racetrack that even if we had host trucks, we would have never been able to wet it all down. (laughs) So all the, the racetrack went from... Um, cracks and gray and everything to this nice even black and it was just like one of those things where if you're sitting there going oh damn it's pouring down rain (laughs) but then then all of a sudden it turns into something that ends up being far better than had everything gone as planned (laughs) that's a great story So you've got to make your magic. But I imagine, too, that you've learned over the years some magical times of day. You know, like landscape photographers talk about that magical hour. Are there similarities in your work with certain times of day or certain favorite atmospheric conditions and so forth? I'll be the first one to say that I love the dawn and dusk hour. I mean, I don't think it's hard to look at my work and see that I do a lot of shots at dawn and dusk. That's always kind of a, a magical time and a, a panicky time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because Fleeting. Uh, you, you've got a 10-minute window in which to do everything, but it's a pretty special time of day. I, I won't say that it's it's not necessarily the ideal time for all buildings, but it is a pretty wonderful time to shoot. As far as weather conditions, I mean, I think one of the healthy things about working as a photographer's assistant in my two years in New York City is you learn quickly to think on your feet. And I'm far from the prima donna photographer. And I'm not somebody who, when I'm shooting, is having fits and yelling and screaming that things (laughs) aren't going my way. I am the type of person who sits there, looks at the situation, and as the situation evolves, and whether it's a positive direction or a negative direction, tries to analyze, okay, what's going on here? What can I do to make this work to my advantage? And I think just simply being able to deal with obstacles as they come up and evolve and change and try and work your vision and make those things work for you is one of the big challenges that one faces. It makes sense. You talk a lot about making sure and getting the lighting to work for you. Do you supplement much of the lighting or do you kind of leave it pretty natural as to what the location gives you? I would say for the most part, I leave it pretty natural. I think one of the things that turned me off to a lot of photography, architectural photography I saw early on in my career was people who came in and kind of overlit the environment. By overlighting the environment, it ceased to look like what the architect intended. And there's a big part of me that I think architects do think about lighting and those type of things and that there needs to be a certain amount of respect given to the architect's intent and the integrity of the space. With that said, if you have a very dark, shadowy area that needs light brought into it, light needs to be brought into it. So I'm not going so far as to say that I don't light, but I light sparingly. I mean, I typically 
walk into a space and say, how can I utilize that which is here? There is a lot of things that I will do with filtration and other things to try and get the image to where I need it to be. What do you mean when you say filtration? I mean by using neutral density filters to bring down a bright area or pump up a dark area. Now you're talking on like the end of your lens or actually... On the end of my lens, yes. Okay. And sometimes it's a combination of those. I will also say there are a certain amount of things that we will do in post. I think Photoshop is a tool that certainly is utilized, whether that by taking a overexposed, regularly exposed and underexposed image to, you know, kind of create a HDR end product. But I, I think that the key thing is I really believe, and this goes back, to shooting 4x5 film that I think too many photographers use Photoshop as a crutch. Photoshop's not a crutch. Photoshop should be a tool. When you walk in and you photograph something, you should have a vision of what you want and you should capture as much of that vision in your shot. That vision should not be a creation out of Photoshop. I've seen far too many architectural photographers with portfolios where they go out and they've shot the building on a lousy day and then dropped in in Photoshop (laughs) a wonderful sky behind the building and it looks like a building that was shot on a lousy day that somebody dropped in the sky (laughs) in Photoshop. Um, If you don't shoot the building on a beautiful day, (laughs) it's not going to look right. So, I mean, you you can fool some of the people some of the time, I I guess, is where it comes down to. Have you ever been in a situation where a client has asked you to to manipulate? I've had very little experience with architectural, but I've had a few situations where, you know, someone said, well, you know, our landscaping isn't done. We need you to add bushes. And, you know, (laughs) are you ever in those kind of situations? Oh, I mean, we've certainly painted grass where there wasn't grass. I don't think there's probably an architectural photographer who has to do that at one point in time. Probably the worst thing I've ever had to do, and and this is now I'm almost ashamed having (laughs) said what I said, but I was shooting a restaurant for a client for the cover of an annual report. And the art director had this vision of doing a dawn shot with these god rays oh, no. kind of streaming out beyond behind the restaurant and maybe something out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> um, the morning we went, I mean, it was a perfectly cloudless sky. So the sky we got behind the restaurant was a beautiful blue, but it was regular. It was blue. It was it was not special enough for the art director. <laughs> And we had shot a another building a few months earlier where at dawn the sky became this incredible modeling of purples and pinks and was quite incredible. So, I mean, what we ended up doing was taking that sky and dropping it in um, <laughs> instead of the blue sky. So, I mean, it, here I said, don't drop in skies, and I, I still contend don't drop in skies, but if an art director wants something godlike, I guess, you know. <laughs> then you have to play the part. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can create lots of things, but I am not God, and uh. I cannot create godlike uh, without little aid of, of some tools. So. That's great. 
If you can point out an architectural photographer out there who, on a moment's notice, can create God rays shooting out behind <laughs> a building, I, I, I want to meet him because he's probably very I mean, busy. I, I, I mean, I will also say that I've worked with architects. We shot the Dallas Fort Worth International Airport, and the architect was just dying to get a shot where the sun broke through the cloud and shone down on a stream directly on the airport, illuminating it like, ah! <laughs> and I, I can't make that happen. <laughs> Maybe I wish I there. could, but I, I can't do that. So. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're not asked those things, but I can't do that. Well, now, in terms of lighting, to go back to the question about lighting and artificial Mm -hmm. lighting in particular, does that story change a little bit when you begin to do interiors? It really depends on what the interior is. I mean, it's rare if you're going to go into a a retail environment, which you're going to be shooting at night when the store is closed, that you're not going to have to light that store to some degree. I mean, it may be redirecting the track lighting that's already existing. It may be adding some supplemental lighting. But I will still say in a lot of corporate interiors, I really try and work with what I'm given to keep it as natural appearing as possible. Okay. Does that introduce craziness with color balance and exposure and stuff like that? Do you It does. I will say that, you know, relatively speaking, things have gotten a lot easier. When you go back to, I feel like an old man when I say when you go back to film days. (laughs) And film days, I mean, for me, I don't want to say I didn't switch to digital, but I I really didn't switch to digital until about a year and a half, two years ago. Because I'm one of those people who feels that film has a warmth to it, much the same as an audiophile likes to listen to a vinyl LP. And I just love the 4x5. I love being under the dark cloth. I love looking at the ground glass. So it was not an easy transition for me to make. I mean, I've made the transition. I'm now shooting medium format digital, which was the closest kind of sister to what I was doing 4x5. But the simple fact of the matter is if you could handle dealing with the color balance issues and those type of things with film, then digital I don't want to say it's a walk in the park, but it becomes a lot easier. We are always shooting a color card and doing certain things so that we can get the color right. But getting the color right has become a much easier thing to accomplish. And I, I just want to say an aside, which was something that was said to me by an art director. And had it not been said to me by somebody outside the profession, I never would have really thought about it. But an art director said to me a few years ago, he said, I really prefer working with photographers who originally shot film and then switched over to digital. Mm than younger photographers who have never shot film and only shoot digital and have only shot digital. And he said the reason why is because people who shot film, because they shot film, have a vision and understanding of what they intend the color to look like. And he said people who shoot digital, since they don't have any baseline, their baseline is just whatever the camera brings up, they're judging what comes up based upon sort of nothing, (laughs) based upon the sensor specs and those type of things. Right. But he said that, you know, he just found that photographers who had at once time shot film had a much better baseline of what the color should like. That's really interesting. So they they have a sense for the deep colors and that, you know, sort of the, the Velvia look and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hadn't thought of that. 
along those lines, do you end up using gels in cases where you have tricky balances and so forth? Not anymore. Okay. Not anymore. I mean, there were days where you'd go in and you'd put magenta filtering up in all the fluorescent lights. To <laughs> and all I can say is, I'm glad those days are <laughs> right. behind us. <laughs> Been there, done that. You know. Right. Well, what about color metering? Do you get into that at all, or do you just work with what you see? I have my color meter in my pack, and quite frankly. Can't remember last time I pulled it out. Right. Check the batteries on that one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's really a non-issue. It's it is more looking at our color, you know, our gray card, our, our color card, finding a baseline, and then tweaking the color temperature, getting it to where it feels like where it's supposed to be. We find that with a lot of photographers that we chat with, not so much with the color metering, but you know, we ask about their light meter a lot, and it seems like a lot. A lot of guys use them when they're starting out, but once they get used to their lights and they get used to you know their location that they work with, it, it seems like it's a, a tool that doesn't get used quite nearly as much anymore. And they, they just kind of know, know what their equipment does. You know, you walk into a space and you go, okay, well, I'm shooting at f11. This is going to be a four second long exposure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's you just, just get there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it just becomes inherent after a while. Well, now you mentioned a gray card. I'm imagining and looking through your portfolio even, there's some spaces which very clearly are going to be mixed light, some some ambient light, some some sunlight, and then a bunch of tungsten lights or perhaps some sodium vapors you know, mixed in here and there. Mm-hmm. When you go to the side white balance, are you metering it in different places in the room? Are you placing that gray card in different portions of the scene and then making that decision manually? Or There's a fair amount that's manual. Like I said, it's really to find a, a baseline. And so, you know, you you try and find that place in the room which has the the greatest mixture of the light sources and kind of figure well if I start there as my baseline then I can kind of build off of that in whatever direction I need to go okay and just generally I guess I'm I'm imagining you on on site do you have laptop for checking all of that stuff are you absolutely so you I mean you kind of set up in one place for a little while and then moving on yeah, we okay. set up the camera. I mean, presently, I'm shooting with a Cambo YDS. I've got six Rodenstock lenses, phase P25 plus back. Well, we have a couple more questions that, that are still coming in through Twitter. One photographer wanted to know, cut right to the chase. He says, yes, I have a question. Is he like hiring? <laughs> <laughs> And the answer to that question is, unfortunately, no. I've gotten a lot of I've gotten a lot of requests lately. You know, I, I will be the first one to say that the economy right now is is very hard, especially on architects. And in turn, that doesn't help those of us in the uh, architectural photography profession. Right. And now I have a full time assistant and and have for quite a long time have had somebody on staff full time. Right now, I, I don't think my first assistant's moving on anywhere. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, we've had a couple people ask about gear as well. And uh, mm-hmm. it's something that I wonder about myself. Tilt shift seems to be, yeah, anytime people talk about that, you know, they either say tilt shift is for the instant creative portrait 
or it's an architectural lens. Do you do most of your work with a, a tilt shift lens? How do you treat perspective when it comes to, to lens selection? I, I do use a tilt shift lens when I'm shooting 35 millimeter. The medium format, the camera YDS, has shift and rise. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I went the route that I went is because it was the closest. I think I called it closest sister to 4x5 that I could find in the digital world. I will say that I will use tilt shift lenses and shoot 35 millimeter when I need to. And lots of people have found that to be a perfectly fine solution for them. I haven't always found it to be a perfectly fine solution for me. I'm not very fond of the 35 millimeter format because it's so long and narrow that if you're shooting a, a vertical shot, you've got way too much ceiling way too much floor and if you're doing a horizontal shot then you've got no ceiling and no floor (laughs) and you know you can shift up and shift down with a pc lens and then combine those two but if you're trying to shift on a diagonal you can't shift up and down combine those two so i i mean there's no question do i use shifts and rises absolutely do i use pc lenses only when i'm shooting 35 millimeter kind of obviously sure when you uh i assume you're use tripods and so forth you have a favorite or certain heads that you use and so forth I have, in fact, it's frustrating to me. I mean, I have a Gitzo tripod and a a Gitzo head. Uh, It's not a geared head, and it's just something I've used for many years back to the same tripod and head I used with my 4x5. I think one of my frustrations is the heads and things that are being made today, being most people are shooting 35 millimeter, are much more lightweight heads. And I hate to say it, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I like my old clunk head (laughs) and the head I have now is probably if you want one you've got to find it on eBay somewhere (laughs) okay so you're you're used to your equipment and you use it that works you get a setup that works and stick with it Uh, absolutely Absolutely. And I feel really good about the setup I have now. It was it was hard to get rid of my 4x5. There were a lot of lenses and a lot of wonderful images had come through and mm. hard to give those things up. Absolutely. But, but there's no point keeping a camera around for shooting film when there aren't labs around locally that are even going to process it for you anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you mentioned your camera bag. I had a thought. I was just curious. Do you carry certain pieces of equipment every time you go to a scene? Do you carry some uh, off-camera strobes or portable flashes or anything like that for when you're in a jam? Any tricks of the trade, so to speak? You know, I, I think most of what I do is pretty basic. I mean, the lights that I do use are, are Dito lights, which okay. are which I really love just because their light is very even and very controllable. And I'm typically, if I'm lighting, I'm typically lighting with tungsten lights. I do have strobe lights, but I really can't remember the last time I took strobes on a shoot. I mean, I I remember the days where you were popping the strobes six times to create a balance between the inside and the outside. But fortunately, once again, that's something that that we can address in post. And so I'm, I'm not carrying around strobes all that often. Okay, that makes sense. Well, there was one question that just popped up on Twitter as well. Uh, he uses a Cambo wide as well with a P25 plus back, and he's looking to upgrade in the next year, and he's wondering what he should start researching. A lot of our listeners probably aren't even familiar with a, a Cambo wide. They're probably going to be you know, used to the a digital SLR. Uh, right. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what the Cambo wide is and what it does for the photographer, and maybe what you know this guy could look at as his next step or things like that. 
Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. Cambo wide is the camera body, but it is basically a lens board, and it is a lens board that allows you to shift the front element, the lens, up and down and left and right. Um, so you have kind of all the shifts that you had with the 4x5, and then the the digital back mounts to the back. There is no bellows. The lens sits probably within a half an inch between the lens and the, and the digital back. So it's a very shallow area, and it has a very shallow depth of field. As far as the Cambo wide and the P25 Plus, I will say that I'm pretty happy with it. I know that there are photographers out there who have to have the biggest, baddest, you know, there's the P45 and now there's the P65. But, you know, Mm. the the P65, I think the file size ends up being about 180 megabytes. And I just, (laughs) and and the P, you know, the P25 is about 60 megabytes. P45 is about 100 megabytes. And the P65 is about 160 megabytes or 180 megabytes. There's no clients out there that are asking (laughs) me for anything bigger than 60 megabytes. So is there anything that can print that detail? Not really. And, and, you know, I've had my stuff printed all over the place, and there's nobody who said that these files are unsatisfactory. So what I can say is, I mean, I have my P, P25 was in for repair. They gave me a loaner P45. And I'll tell you, you know, you put on a back with that amount of capacity and, and it's hard not to swoon over the level of detail. <laughs> but but it's sort of like, okay, you as the photographer, you as a techie can swoon over it but does it really give the client anything that they need? I mean, about the only value in these larger backs that I see is that very infrequently, but from time to time you get into moray situations. Mm. And, you know, the bigger the back is, the less moray is going to be a issue. So if I were upgrading and he has the Cambo wide and a P25 plus back, I'll tell you what has blown me away. I mean, blown me away more than anything else in the switch to digital have been the road and stock lenses. The lenses, the six lenses I have range from about $2,000 to about $6,000. But the very first shoot that I used my Cambo wide on, we did a dust shot of a building from about 150 yards away and I could read through the window of the building from 150 yards away I could read the time on the clock in the cafeteria and so I'm sort of like if I've got that level of sharpness and a 60 megabyte file you know what more do I need I mean you That's can always amazing. want more but I mean what more do you need right I think I'd probably, you know, look at the lenses you have and those quality of the lenses because it's really the lenses that have been remarkable. That's great advice. There's another question that came in that a gentleman asked if your approach to rectilinear architecture is different than a space that has more organic forms. Not really. Not really. I mean, you know, I'm, you may go in and you may do some vignettes and some details and things like that, that that may be a little bit different. But, you know, you still have to typically have a ground. And right. You, you, more often than not, you kind of would like that ground to be level. 
you know, I, I will also say, you know, you said, do you correct things in, in Photoshop? And I don't shoot this way, but I will say there are limitations to the lenses and there are invariably times when we do have to tilt the camera up to get the whole building in from ground to to top and then have to make reparations in Photoshop. Right. But if I can do everything square, I will do everything square. Great. And I had a question somewhat related. I noticed in some of your images, you you introduce people. When do you make that decision? Is that just, well, there happens to be people here? Or do you like to use people to anchor images in certain ways? You know, for many years, architects did not want people in their photographs. And now architects do want people, or more and more architects are wanting people in their photographs. And being that I've always sort of, I mean, I I enjoy architecture, but I enjoy working with people as well. I do like having people in shots to add scale. So, I mean, sometimes it's just making do with what you have. I will say my my old assistant, who's now gone to New York City and, and is assisting in New York, I mean, if you really look through my portfolio, you'll find him pop up probably a half dozen or so times in in various shots. Uh, You'll probably find me pop up a few times in shots as well. But, I mean, I I do enjoy the integration of people. And, you know, quite frankly, I was shooting a project about a month ago where I really wanted to incorporate people and the architect said, no, we don't want people in the shots. And because they did not want people in the shots, we don't have people in the shots. But I, I really felt that they could have added a level of life and excitement to the shots that I, I will say sadly doesn't exist. But well, Great. Well, Brad, we've, we've taken quite a bit of your time. We really appreciate you hanging out with us tonight. And uh, Well, thank you so much. Thanks again, Brad. Well, that's all we have for this episode of LightSource. The brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other LightSource episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. photocastnetwork.com.